Welcome to Rich Young's Investment Today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Samira Kayani, who is an associate professor, Liver Research Center, Department of Pathology, School of Medicine, University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Kiani, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I would characterize your interest as in gene therapy. Perhaps you could take a couple minutes to tell us a little bit about your program. My research program is centered around gene therapy, but with a particular emphasis on how we can make gene therapy safer and controllable in order to be able to translate these therapies faster to patients. And in order to achieve gene therapy, we focus on designer DNA binding proteins, such as the CRISPR technology or zinc finger technology that have been recently introduced to the field for more precise and site-directed gene editing or epigenetic modulation. And then we combine these tools with elements and components of synthetic biology to make them more controllable. And with controllability, I mean controlling when, where, and how these tools function in the body. And as I mentioned, the whole goal is to make them safer for clinical translation. In another part, we are also looking at the immune response that the body forms in gene therapy tools and try to figure out whether there are ways for us to modulate these tools such that they elicit less immune response in the body. So what are the principal afflictions that gene therapy is potentially applicable to? As you know, the field of synthetic biology has been progressing a lot over the last decade. But, you know, in a very basic form, synthetic biology uses the elements of computer science and electrical engineer to actually generate genetic circuits that kind of have resemblance to electrical circuits to bestow new properties to the cells. So what we do in the combination of synthetic biology and gene therapy is that we develop genetic circuits that use the CRISPR technology to be able to control how CRISPR functions. Like, for instance, we develop genetic cascades that, you know, one guide RNA can repress the expression of the other guide RNA such that we can control sequential modulation of different genes using the CRISPR. Like once a gene is repressed, then something happens and then another gene will get repressed. So that uses some of the elements and design principles of synthetic biology to be able to achieve that. The other version is that how can we control the expression of guide RNA, which is actually one of the components of the CRISPR system from cell or context-specific promoters. And this turns out not to be a trivial function because these RNAs kind of like naturally like to be expressed from promoters which are ubiquitous inside different cells. So using certain machinery that is cell type specific or context specifically specific has been subject of research in the field for years. And we have our work has also contributed to that controllability of guide RNA as well. So what are some of the principal diseases that this might be applicable? 
in my lab, we focus on two specific translation. One is controlling the immune response. We want to be able to control how our body forms immunity against invading viruses, whether those viruses, for instance, are gene therapy viruses or whether they are just like viruses such as influenza and so on. The other application that we are seeking right now is to develop organoids from stem cells. So to basically push the stem cells towards differentiation pathways that ultimately forms into little tissue-specific organoids. And we use these tools to actually direct that differentiation. So I see that if I look at your website, there's some of the work you've published is on many livers. Tell us about the liver therapy. Sure. Some of the works that we've done recently, as I mentioned about organoids, is in collaboration with one of my colleagues, Dr. Moe Brian Connie, who is an expert in driving the differentiation of stem cells towards this tiny liver tissues that we call liver organoids. And in this collaboration, what we do is we use the CRISPR technology and we actually use the capacity of this tool to transiently on and off the expression of the genes. One of the genes that we looked into to be able to transiently activate in these liver organoids is a gene called C3A4. This gene is involved in one of the important aspects of metabolism in liver. So we use the CRISPR tool to transiently upregulate the expression of this gene to be able to make more and more of the protein product. And therefore, we see that these liver tissues, once they've produced more of these genes, they become more mature and they act closer to an adult liver phenotype. So that is kind of the collaboration we are doing. The other ongoing work would involve activation or repression of certain genes in the stem cells to actually create different tissues, but with a focus more on the liver. And this time we are looking at other genes that are master regulators, for instance, liver formation. And we try to see if you can use this CRISPR technology and synthetic biology to actually drive the differentiation of these organoids autonomously from the genetic networks that we engineer within the stem cells. What's the status of this work? The initial collaboration that we did is actually published recently in the journal Cell Systems. And it basically showed that we can use the CRISPR technology to activate the genes in these 3D tissues. It's published recently, a couple of months ago. And the collaboration is still ongoing, looking at different genes, looking at different genetic circuit topologies, and hopefully we'll have more publications out soon. So from a patient perspective, when might someone be able to benefit from this type of study? There are different benefits. Like, for instance, if you look at the stem cell organized work, the type of work that we are doing in collaboration with Dr. Mo, who is actually leading the project, is basically developing these customizable, universal, human-induced pluripotent stem cells that have these genetic elements incorporated in them that you can basically ship around the world and just put them in a culture add a small molecule, and the small molecule derives a differentiation program in these organoids, and you can deliver tissues which are reproducible, which are easy to produce because of less handling involved, 
And therefore, a lot of drugs can be tested in these liver organoids, or they can be used for disease modeling. And if you talk about the patient-specific cell line that we generate from patient, again, these genetic programs that we engineer can be easily imported into these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, and we can easily form this customizable or patient-specific liver tissues from them. And again, test different drugs or disease modeling in a patient-specific manner. In the other project that it's more focused on my own lab, which is immunomodulation, the idea is to develop, again, a universal tool to be able to modulate host immune system such that it can be used for many different patients in many different diseases as an easily deployable tool to combat infectious diseases, to combat inflammatory condition. So we target a gene, which is very universal, and the paper has been published in Nature Cell Biology last year, that we showed that, for instance, a gene, which is a keynote in innate immunity and adaptive immunity, can be modulated with the CRISPR technology, can be transiently turned off, and that can have a lot of anti-inflammatory and antiviral effect and is useful to be deployed in clinic to target many inflammatory conditions or pre-existing immunity to gene therapy vehicles and so on. So if we were having this discussion five years from now, what would be available clinically? Again, like for instance, the immunotherapy that we are developing using the CRISPR tool, we hope to move them to clinic as soon as possible. We are in discussion of how we can do that. So that would require us to actually test these tools in different settings, in models that are larger. And in addition to be able to fine tune them better, but once these kind of like, I would call them IND enabling experiments are done, these tools hopefully will be available for different patients who suffer from chronic inflammatory conditions. The patients who have either new or pre-existing immunity against gene therapy viruses, such as adeno-associated viruses. So hopefully they will be available in the form of gene therapy to a lot of different patients. We are heading that way. So I see you have some interest in pain research. Tell us a little bit about that. Our interest in pain modulation came from this notion that we know that a lot of etiologies of pain comes from dysregulation of multiple genes that lead to formation of pain. And a lot of drugs that are out there to modulate pain have either been ineffective or have addictive properties. So we asked whether we could use the CRISPR technology to actually modulate the pain. And the reason we thought maybe CRISPR can be useful are because of main two unique characteristics that CRISPR technology has. The first is that we can use that to transiently modulate the expression of the genes without exerting permanent change in the DNA code, meaning that we can upregulate or downregulate the expression of the genes without changing the DNA code permanently. And the other property that CRISPR has is that we can do multiplexing. What does multiplexing mean? It means that you can activate a gene and then repress another gene at the same time, or you can repress two genes, or you can activate two genes or more than that, without really adding a lot of workload to the cells. So we thought, okay, what if we combine these two properties of the CRISPR and start to target 
at least more than one genes that are involved in formation of the pain using the CRISPR technology. So that's the work that is ongoing in my lab, trying to modulate inflammation in the nervous system at the same time, modulate the expression of certain ion channels on the surface of the neurons that are responsible for excitation or relaxation of the neuronal cells to see if we can actually come up with a more efficacious treatment to control pain as compared to a standard treatments that are out there. So uh, I believe you have some interest in communicating the results of science to the general population. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I have that interest, but also I have interest in actually bringing in more than communicating the result of science, bringing in underrepresented voices to science communication. What I want to mention here is that a lot of time, the picture and image of a scientist is formed by basically cliches and a stereotype. What I am striving to do alongside my research program in my lab is to find out ways to engage public in the conversations around science, but also depict how different scientists look like by bringing in women and minorities into the picture. So I formed an initiative at University of Pittsburgh called Tomorrow Life, and that is actually using the power of simple filmmaking using your iPhone to actually depict the stories of women in science. And with that, I'm hoping that we provide a plethora of these films in which women do research in a science are depicted and develop these role models for girls out there who want to pursue science. In addition to that, as you also mentioned, also I'm looking for other novel ways to communicate results of science. And again, using the power of storytelling and filmmaking to actually communicate that. And that is, again, as part of the Tomorrow Life Initiative, which is connecting scientists and filmmakers to shape the stories. So is Tomorrow Life have any products the public can look at? We have a web page. You can go into www.tomorrow.life. And our women and minority program, which is called Science Sisterhood, is going to come out soon, I think within the next month or so. So we will see videos of women graduate students being collaborated with who will basically tell their story. So thank you for joining us today and sharing with us your pioneering studies and your innovative techniques for reaching members of the public with the science results. The Ghana Institute welcomes suggestions in terms of a future podcast. Thank you for listening.